All right, let's get started. We'll open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Those of you who got here a few minutes early, it looks like you got here before the bottom fell out out there. I hope so. Because if not, yeah. If, if they're not rolled up, you'll be floating on the inside of the car on the way home. The car won't be floating, but you will. All right, Hebrews chapter 3, I want to open up. Uh, we're going to read uh, verses 5 to, uh, well, really we'll just read 5 to 12. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of focus in there. Uh, but after I read, we'll pray. Hebrews 3, verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. For a testimony of those things which are to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope, firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come before you as you are the one true living God. Just to read these verses is very sobering to our hearts. We ask, Lord, that we not be those who are falling away in unbelief. Be merciful to us. For we often go astray and struggle and we don't trust in you as we should. Trust in our own works, our own remaining flesh. Lord, will you, by the power of your Spirit, caution us this day, turn our hearts where necessary. Enable and cause us to think rightly about who you are. think rightly about who your son is, that we would glory in him alone. We have so much weakness in and of ourselves, and yet there is 
the most strength and confidence in your son Christ and who he is and all that he's done. Not one of us can boast in ourselves, but may we have all boast in the Lord Jesus Christ through his cross and nothing else. We ask your mercy upon us as we hear the word, and Lord, please use the preacher according to the truth of your word. Not one of us is perfect, not one of us is right in and of ourselves, and yet you still use your church to put your word forth, and we're thankful for that. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. As we move along in this chapter, we've seen the faithfulness of Moses and the context of that uh, last week in the Old Testament. And this week in verse 6, he says, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Uh, Letter B this morning, Christ was faithful in all his house as a son. Christ was faithful in all his house as a son. As he's building this, this is really kind of a a little bit of a a concluding verse, verse 6, leading into verse 7 toward the end of the chapter. Um, But in ways, uh, this verse is not concluding in and of itself. It's more a tying together. Um, It ties this section together and really begins to tie together the rest of his argument from chapters 1 and 2. Remember, he's been building that case uh, of the son being uh, very God of very God and very man of very man and the necessity of both of those proving to his Hebrew listeners uh, from Scripture and the context of the whole of Scripture who the Christ is. And most often we've seen him recognized as Jesus, and here uh, he is recognized as Christ or Messiah. Um, And so um, he's making some, some very good distinctions or important distinctions about Christ here and about those who believe in him. And verse 6 pulls into this place to say, uh, Christ is the son over his house. And if we are believers, this is our house. Whose house is the house of believers? Um, He pointedly says, whose house we are. Now he states that in almost a, a very specific statement. And it's declarative. But then he has this if statement. If then statement. And that gives us a qualification to the idea of being a part of that house. Um, he's not just leaving that open for anyone's personal inter- interpretation as to how they're a part of the house. He says, If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Well, under this section, Firstly, believers hold fast uh, 
to their confidence in Christ alone. Believers hold fast to their confidence in Christ alone. The idea of holding fast here is in that understanding of holding as if your very life depends on it. Um, now, you know, we can uh, emphasize that in a way that it's put in a uh, kind of a, a movie book form idea of that person hanging off a cliff, holding on to a rope as if their very life depends on it. And that that's a, can be a good image for us uh, in a modern sense. Um, but it also begs the question, uh, you know, when we ask ourselves about who we are as Christians, is that really how we see our need of Christ? That our very life depends on who He is as the Son of God and as the Son of Man. Do I really see that in its full context? I think the Hebrews writer is wanting these uh, Hebrew listeners to ask themselves, am I still holding on to Moses in a way that there's something there that I've put Moses in the place of Christ? Has the works of the law, as the Pharisees taught them, have they been more important to me? And I'm wanting to return back to that because it, it seems like something uh, more akin or natural to my desire to go back that way. And he's saying, no. If you're in the house of the Son, then you hold fast to Him. You hold fast to who He is. One writer notes, the name Christ is used here for the first time in this epistle. And it's without the definite article or the article. He says, other times we'll see this term used, Jesus Christ or Jesus, but here we have Christ. And Christ is contrasted with Moses as a son over God's house. There is in the whole of Scripture but one house of God. I hope that will be clear to you all uh, in the context of the whole of Scripture. There is one house of God. God has only one house and His people are in that one house in Christ alone. And that's the context here of verse 6. To make clear that we are holding fast our confidence to Christ alone. All of that leading up has been important. You get to one verse and you can see the importance of the building context of chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's never wanted to put us in a place not to see who Christ is. Christ, the Son of God, created all things. Christ, the Son of God, for a little while in its context, came to this earth in human form. And he lived a life among people just like us, and yet he did so and never sinned. And he's essentially saying this is the only one you can put your whole confidence in. You can't put your confidence in Moses. You can't put your confidence in your ability to live the law. 
You can't put your confidence in your ability to work anything out before God and say, look, God, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm still pretty decent. He's saying no. The only place to put our confidence, the only place to hold fast to is in Christ alone. Secondly, under this, uh, this first uh, bearing is believers hold firm to Christ alone to the very end. One writer notes that perseverance is one of the marks of being a Christian. Without it, we are not Christ's. This whole verse in its essence really is about perseverance. And really, if you want to understand what the Hebrews writer is saying to those whom he's writing to, is he's, he's saying, are you persevering in Christ? Now, lots of times you hear perseverance of the faith, but faith in what? The faith is in Christ. And here the Hebrews writer is being very specific. He's saying if you're going to hold firm, you have to hold firm to Christ alone, and it's to the very end. Well, this is the idea of what it means to persevere in the faith. To hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. One writer says, our persevering in Christ should be our confidence and boasting in all of life. Another writer says, the word for boast here, which means something one can boast about. It's not talking about the act of boasting. When you see that word here, uh, that we are to have this confidence and the boast of our hope. We're holding fast to that rope who is Christ and the rope itself. We have confidence in that rope. Do you have confidence that Christ saves? Or do you have confidence that salvation comes by some other means? Do you have confidence that Christ keeps or your keeping comes by some other means? If I'm holding on to that rope, I'm holding fast, I'm trusting in it with confidence. And it says, and the boast of our hope firm until the end. It's not talking about a boasting in and of itself. It's saying it's something I can boast about. I can speak of it boldly. It's interesting when you read uh, the New Testament and the unfolding and the teaching of who Christ is, you'll see, first of all, in the Gospels, Christ has uh, a full confidence in who he is as the Son of God, who he is as the Son of Man, and what his purpose is. And he continually says, I'm here to do my Father's will, and then he does his Father's will. When you see the unfolding of who Christ is through the letters of the New Testament, is Paul ever boasting about himself as in in and of himself purely he can do this or he is the one that needs to be looked at? No, he's always building a case for who Christ is and he's boldly speaking of who Christ is. I think it says something to us to make sure that 
This world we live in sometimes wants to press in on us so hard that really what it wants to do is it wants to, to shake our trust and confidence in that rope we're holding on to to where we, we wouldn't be ones to be able to, be, to speak boldly about who this Christ is. To live boldly about who this Christ is. Now, living boldly doesn't mean we uh, walk around and uh, take our Bibles and smash everybody's face in with them physically uh, and make sure that they have bloody noses and say, that's from Jesus. No, but we can live boldly in such a way in what we believe and who Christ is that it becomes evident to people around us there's something different about who we are. We can speak the words of truth, that truth of the Scripture, and live it out in such a way that people recognize there's something different about those people. You do that when you're confidence, your full confidence, your trust, your holding fast to something. And for believers, it's Christ. Scripture tells us Christ existed for all time. He's eternal. There never was a time He did not exist. The Hebrews writer builds on that, doesn't he? The Hebrews writer tells us Christ was there at creation, that he created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrews writer tells us of the authority that the Son has in all of life, time, space, and history. When the world begins to try to chip away at that confidence and say, oh, no, 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 God didn't create the heavens and the earth. No, 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 no. Billions of years ago, there was a primordial soup. It was this little bitty puddle and this little microbe billions of years ago. And then somehow we had a big bang. And then somehow there were gaps. And somehow all those little bitty primordial things became something else. And then it became something else. And then out of apes, we got humans. No. We say, no, no, no. The scripture tells us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The scripture tells us that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And the Word is God. The scripture tells us that. Let's see. When the scripture tells me that I'm a sinner, where's my trust? The world says what? We're all basically, yeah, we're all basically good. We're okay. We're going to figure this thing out. It, it's just going to take us billions of more years, and finally we'll get around to being nice to each other. We won't have terrorists anymore who just out of nowhere begin to bomb other people. We won't have people in uh, a, a United States of America who can't seem to figure out how not to scream and yell and get all vicious with each other all the time. Oh, this United States of America, it's the perfect nation because we all love each other, right? And we all get along. We all get along. Nobody has problems in the United States, right? 
God, we know different. Because the United States is not our home. We understand that we're all sinners because the scripture teaches we're all sinners. He's giving us this picture that's very important in the language. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. What is there for me to boast about? It's a good question, isn't it? That's essentially what he's saying. What is there for you and I to boast about? Do I have something to boast about that I can come to you all and say, look at me, I'm perfect, I'm right, I do everything right, I say everything right, I always get it right, just trust in me. Is that what I should be saying to you all? No. And if I were saying that, hopefully some of you would have a little problem with it. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Humanity is not perfect. Governments are not perfect. Bosses are not perfect. Companies are not perfect. Capitalism is not perfect. Socialism is certainly not perfect. Communism is not perfect. Monarchies are not perfect. Matter of fact, we could list all kinds of things with any of those things that we would say what? There's a problem. So he's asking, what is there to boast about? And for the believer, there's only one thing, one person to boast about, and it's who? And how long do we do it? What does he say in the text? How long do we do it? To the very end. Think about that in the context of even Christ's eternality. You and I can boast about Christ to the very end because Christ and His eternality is the very Son of God. He is perfect. There's never a place where that boasting can end and should end for us as believers. Because even in the bodily resurrection, once He returns, what's going to be our boasting then? We're going to stand before God here comes the sun in judgment, and what will be our boasting then? Christ, hopefully, right? Because if it's not Christ, then there's no hope. So you see here, he's really built this case. Yes, yes, see the faithfulness of Moses. But Moses doesn't compare. He can't. It's not possible for him to compare. Why can't Moses compare to Christ? All right, Christ is incomparable, and Paul's letters say that clearly. What else? I heard some other answers. All right, he's a created being. He's human. He's imperfect. So the best he can be in the sense of the text is, is he's just a servant. He's not the son. He can serve, and he did so faithfully in the context But he's not the son. He's not the son. This also brings us not only the context of our confidence and boasting in all of life as in Christ, but our persevering in Christ should be our hope in all of life. 
One writer says, hope is used in the New Testament in much the same way as we use it now in ordinary speech. But more characteristically, it is the Christian hope, the certainty that God will carry out His promises, especially those in the gospel. Now he goes on to say something else, but I, I want to stop there for a second. The certainty that God will carry out His promises. Really, ultimately, the book of Hebrews is about recognizing the promises of God and those who have had faith in those promises. That's kind of the culmination when we get to chapter 11 and talk about the hall of faith is look at who has had faith in the promises of God. And here he's going to start drawing a distinction between those who have had faith in the promises of God, their hope has been in Christ in all of life, versus looking at the children of Israel as a whole. Now remember, in the nation of Israel, there was a remnant. There are believers in the nation of Israel. Yet when the whole of Israel is looked at, it's as Paul said, not all Israel is Israel. Okay? Not every single blood-bearing Jewish Israelite is of the Israel of God. There's a difference between the two. And here he starts to draw that distinction by using Psalm 95. In verse 7, he says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says... Let's stop there. I want you to note that. Um, we don't see that kind of phrasing that often in, in, in Scripture. And we... We don't need to walk by this without saying something about it. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says. Here the Hebrews writer is uh, giving authorship of the Word of God in the context of Psalm 95, but he's giving authorship of the Word of God to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bearing out the Word of God, carrying men along to bring God's Word to condescend it into human language. Now, this is a pretty big appeal by the Hebrews writer. He's going to make an appeal about the promises of God and the importance of those who have trusted in the promises of God versus those who have not. Looking at those who are in Christ and those who are not. And he's using this illustration of the people of Israel out of Psalm 95, but when he opens up that illustration, he says, this is from the very Holy Spirit himself. You need to recognize this is how God the Father, uh, God the Son have worked in full, complete conjunction with one essence, the Holy Spirit, co-equal in that essence, has condescended to man in such a way that men would be carried along to bring the Word of God forward. It's a direct appeal to the very consciences of those who are listening. You say you're a believer? You say you understand these things rightly? Then listen to what the Holy Spirit says. That strong language... The third person of the Trinity invoked. 
It also is strong language, and this is something you ought to see in the practicality of it. We better not go around willy-nilly saying the Holy Spirit said this. If the Hebrews writer invoked this as the Holy Spirit says, and he goes back and he's quoting Scripture, we better take a little bit of a, a signal from that to say, you know what, I better not be walking around just saying the Holy Spirit said something unless I know it's scriptural truth. It may not be verbatim scripture, but it better be scripturally based in the fullness of its context. I need to be very careful. Pastors need to be careful of that. We need to be watchful. But even when we're speaking to others, we need to be careful of that. It's also a caution in the broader evangelical world for those to make an appeal to, to say that the Holy Spirit told them to do something. The Holy Spirit said this. We need to be really careful about those things. Because here the Hebrews writer brings this forward to us to say, if you really want to understand the promises of God, you need to understand the Holy Spirit speaks in very specific ways about the promises of God. When the Holy Spirit speaks in His Word, that is revelation of God. And if we're saying the Holy Spirit told me to tell something, then what I'm saying is I have new revelation. Now, I don't know about y'all, but when I get to thinking about that for a minute, all of a sudden, that, that, that whoa. Do I really want to be the one to stand up or, or to start saying to people, I have new revelation from God, and then to be accountable for the words that are coming out of my mouth as what I have considered to be revelation? See, the Holy Spirit can speak on God's behalf, God the Father and God the Son, on their behalf because He's one with the Father and the Son. He can endure the bearing of the very essence of God. It's even why James warns men about teaching the Word of God. You better be careful. Every time I read those passages, it makes me sink a little bit. So don't go by the opening of verse 7 and not pick up the sense of how serious this is and what the Hebrews writer is doing. He's making an appeal here invoking the Holy Spirit. Yes. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're just rejecting God's revelation. It's one you'll hear 
Yeah, if, you, if, if you're, you know, that's, that's why you get in dangerous territory when people start saying, well, I don't like this book or that book. Um, um, now, it's one thing to say, well, this book is hard to understand. That's one thing. But to say, well, I don't like that book and I think it should be put out. We get into dangerous territory when we do those things. Um, but Scott's right. You have a, a cohesiveness here. You know, gluing all of this together and saying from start to finish, this is God's word. The Holy Spirit has condescended to carry men along, as Warfield put it, to bear out the truth of God's word in Revelation and to start picking it apart. You better be really, really careful. Yeah, that, that whole context of the importance of seeing that God used men of different temperaments and personalities to bear out the truth of his word, and yet the word is, is one. Um, it, it, kind of the, the illustration of, of the orchestra. Um, sometimes you can hear some instruments by themselves, and they sound fine, but you kind of wonder, you know, maybe about, uh, the bassoon by itself. I don't know if anybody sits and listens to a whole album of the bassoon. Maybe they do. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty instrument. Um, not that y'all care what I think about it, but it's a pretty instrument. Um, but that's rare for somebody to, to... Generally what the bassoon is is an instrument inside of the whole orchestra. Um, and there's places, per se, if you just had Ecclesiastes by itself and nothing else what would you do with it? It would be a little bit difficult, wouldn't it? Somebody said to you, well, just read Ecclesiastes and you'll understand everything. Um, that'd be a little tough. But because we have the whole of the Scripture, the Holy Spirit worked in such a way to give us the orchestra, right? And so then we, we hear the beautiful music of the whole of the Scripture. And the Holy Spirit has done all of that work, as, as Scott says. Um, so, I'm sorry, that was not in my notes, so I got a little, I, I should have put that in my notes, but I saw those phrases and um, I, I, I'm going to have to regather my thought here. No, 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 you didn't do anything. I, nothing, I, I should have had something in my notes about Holy Spirit says, but I I didn't do that, so I apologize. If I have it in my notes, I'm usually a little better about keeping on track. Um, so we, we have a sense here of, of this uh, moving along in the context of, hey, God has given you this revelation of who Christ is. Don't be like your forefathers. Don't be like your forefathers. And he pulls out this section of 
Psalm 95 and says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice. Now it's interesting, he's invoking that from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is invoking it from the time of Israel and where? The Exodus, right? So here you have Scripture building upon Scripture. And the Hebrews writer is saying, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Now he's about to build a whole case about the, the, the serious issue of unbelief and he's going to do that off of Scripture building upon Scripture through the whole of the context. When he makes the appeal from Psalm 97, today if you hear his voice, now you need to note that phrase and a couple of others here are going to be reused in this letter in several different places. He's going to to kind of pull those out as he goes along and reuse them. But do you realize right then and there to those Hebrews listeners, he's saying to them. Now, remember, they, they would sit down and read these letters. Oftentimes, they would have them read out loud in a whole. So they're listening to Paul's whole argument and he gets to this place right here and says from the Old Testament, today if you hear his voice... Now, two things you need to note about that. One is, the first of all, that the appeal he uses being from the Old Testament, when they were listening to that, more than likely, the reader of it wouldn't have said in quotation marks. It was not written in Greek in quotation marks. They had a good enough knowledge of their Old Testament that when he read that to them, they recognized, oh, I may look at what I'm hearing as new to me in some ways, but he's not telling me something new in the fullness of it because he's telling me I need to listen to the very voice of God and that appeal has been made throughout all time, space, and history. Secondly, though, he's making that appeal directly to them. What was used in the context of Psalm 95 uh, in, in the days of Israel to, to get them to listen today, if you hear my voice, what was given to them some, uh, you know, a thousand years ago, he's saying to those Hebrew listeners right then and there, Today, if you hear the voice of God, you need to listen. Are you a believer? If you're a believer, then you're in the house of Christ. If you're a believer, then you're holding fast to Christ alone. If you're a believer, then all of your confidence and hope is in Christ alone. If you're a believer... You have a boasting about Christ or a, a boldness about who Christ is that permeates the whole of your life. But then he uses this contrast in verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because... Are, are the Israelites as a whole being pulled out of the Exodus? 
Are the Israelites in, in this day of the Hebrews writer, are the Israelites uh, as a whole, are they in Egypt? In captivity? No. He's bringing this forward in the context of the very church of Christ. Believers in Christ. I've led you out of the captivity already. Believe in Christ. Why would you go back to the captivity? You remember in verse 1 how we talked about this gracious appeal. Therefore, holy brethren. Don't lose sight of this appeal that's being made. And now it's being made with, with caution and warning. These Hebrews listeners, there's a temptation, there's a struggle that, you know what, we're under all this persecution. I'll just go back to what I know. Rome doesn't really have a problem as far as legalizing Judaism. We got problems because they want to stomp us down all the time and we're kind of a cantankerous people, but they allow our religion to exist. Why don't I just kind of go back to that? And here he's making this appeal to them. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. That had its context in Psalm 95 when it was written. Making an appeal for the people of Israel at the time. Is there any guess at what the context of Psalm 95 was? Any, any thought about that? Okay. He's making this appeal of them dying in the wilderness. He says, why do you want to be like that? Bringing that forward to the time of the Hebrews listener, and now here in 2024, we're reading the same thing. Asking ourselves, why would we want to be like that? Why would we want to harden our hearts just like the Israelites did in the day that they provoked God. If we look back at the time of the captivity, they grumbled about the work of God. They hardened their hearts to their God. They tested the God of all creation and His commands. And they did not know God's ways. Verse 10. If you read... Verse 8 down to verse 10 it gives you the essence of those things. And the Hebrews writer is saying to them, why do you want to do that? Yeah. A development of the doctrine of the Trinity being unfolded before our eyes. Sure. Yeah. And it reminds us of that co-equal essence because as that's unfolding, God the Father is, is not becoming God the Son. 
No, God the Father is God the Father. And God the Son is God the Son. And God the Holy Spirit is God the Holy Spirit. So it sees that the context of them showing in that or, or uh, working in that co-equal essence, the distinctiveness of the personhood is there, and yet they are one. And the writer's revealing that doctrine to us right there. Yeah. I, I, I need to close there. It's 10 o'clock. I'm actually going to try to be on time today. Uh, that was a good place. Thank you, Pat. That was a good place to end. Thank you very much. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your kindness to us and thoughtfulness through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your work through your Holy Spirit to give your word to your people that we may hear and know and believe and trust. We also thank you, Lord, that it is a warning and a caution to those who are in unbelief. We ask your mercy upon those who are unbelieving, Lord, that you would bring them from death to life in Christ Jesus. Lord, will you use us as your servants that we would love the things of your word and live them out before the whole of the world that we're around, our, our sphere, wherever it may be, if it's in our homes with our children, let us be thoughtful, Lord, about how we live our lives as your servants. And most of all, Lord, give us minds and hearts to trust in you and have all confidence in you to the very end. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.